The Humanist Being presents When Humanists Attack. got a friend? If you do, I'm glad. Would you say you have more than one? Maybe you're like me. I've got a handful of close friends I've made over the years, and they're scattered all over the world, and I've lost touch with many of them. In the city where I live, I know a lot of people. We're glad when we run into each other, but sometimes I'm haunted by the question, who can you call when you're down and troubled? In May of this year, the Surgeon General of the United States, Dr. Vivek Murthy, released a public health advisory on our epidemic of loneliness and isolation. Half of all U.S. adults describe themselves as lonely. About the same amount say they have three or fewer close friends. And that was before the COVID-19 experience, which magnified the problem. 12% say they have no close friends at all, according to an American Perspective survey published in 2021. Our social networks are shrinking. We're living our lives increasingly online, and people are spending less and less time in the company of others. Just three hours a week on average, according to one survey. Loneliness, or social isolation, or disconnection, increases the risk for all sorts of illness, not just depression, not just suicide, but also heart disease, stroke, dementia, and premature death across the board. According to the Surgeon General's report, social isolation has the equivalent effect on mortality as smoking 15 cigarettes per day. We've got a social problem here. How should humanists respond? Dr. Murthy said in a recent interview, What we have to do now in modern life is intentionally build in the infrastructure we need for connection in our individual lives as well as in our communities. My name is Roger Kimmel-Smith, and as I dug into researching this topic further, I read a really thoughtful article by a writer who's been covering the loneliness issue, what she calls the Friendship Desert for years as a freelance journalist. Her name is Ari Hunervar, and I'm very happy to say she's my guest on this episode of When Humanists Attack. Ari Hunervar has got a multitude of talents and a fascinating biography. She was born in Iran and emigrated to the United States unaccompanied at age 14. In addition to being a journalist, she's a poet, visual artist, dancer, public speaker and performer, political activist, cultural bridge builder, and a musical ambassador of peace. She dances with refugees, leads workshops on resilience through joy, and campaigns to drop poems, not bombs. She's the author of the novel A Girl Called Rumi and founder of Rumi with a View. Rumi with a View. 
Humanist.com. Ari Hunnivar, welcome to When Humanists Attack. I'm so thrilled that you're here. Hello. I'm so thrilled to be here. Thank you so much, Roger. So I first heard about you just a couple of weeks ago when I read an article you published in Insider.com, a first-person article uh, about your trouble making friends as an adult in the United States and a creative idea you tried to solve the problem. But now before we get to that idea, which is a very interesting one, I was also interested in who you were. So after a little internet research, I learned you have an extraordinary life story and a dizzying array of talents and accomplishments. And I listened to a couple of other podcast interviews you've given where you describe your childhood in Iran under Khomeini's regime and in the war against Iraq and the remarkable series of events by which you came to the United States at age 14 and your parents left you behind here. I also learned that in the past few years, you've written other articles on the topic of friendship or loneliness or community building, also first-person articles talking about your own experiences. So now without asking you to recapitulate your life story, what, what I do want to ask is, how did it happen that from being plunked down in the, the Western United States as an adolescent through young adulthood and becoming married with a kid, how did you come to recognize that you wanted or needed to promote social connection? Or what, what, what's the story of your dance with loneliness? Thank you for that question. Yeah, my story is not unique. Uh, when people move to a place where there is not a community that they have grown up with or they have created uh, on their own, there's, they've got the exact same story with that I had, which is in 2008, I moved to California with my husband and my newborn. And all of a sudden I was like, wait a minute, raising an infant is really hard. And that's probably why they keep saying it takes a village. It takes a village. Where Where is this elusive village? Yeah. And where were the resources? It didn't, yeah. it didn't take long to see that this proverbial village wasn't going to manifest out of thin air. And I had to figure it out on my own, which, by the way, is a really big ask from our species. And that's partly why we're having so many problems. Figuring uh, out on your uh, own, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, what around uh, that time in 2008, it occurred to me that individualism is was a failed experiment. We tried it. It turned out to be like a TV dinner eaten in front of the screen without much nutritional value for the <laughs> body and soul. <laughs> and it has kept us more and more isolated while making us sick in numerous ways. So, um, I mean, researchers have been sounding the alarm for many years, and now we have the Surgeon General's warning uh, that it's worse than smoking 15 cigarettes a day, and three out of four people are experiencing loneliness. And uh, friendship in general has declined considerably to the tune that the number of people with zero friends has quadrupled since 1990. And this is frightening. Yeah. So, um, yeah. so yeah, so, so that's when my journey began. And then mm -hmm. I did a little research and it, it uh, looked like that uh, even the word free 
and friends share the same linguistic root, which is pre, meaning to love. And the word friend was originally meant for the free people of one's clan, as opposed to enslaved people who were separated from their families yeah. and communities. Wait, pre, and, in, in uh, what language, pre? I believe it's Latin. Mm-hmm. So interesting. So, um, and and then I was like, okay, so these systems under which we're all living right now are thriving on profit rather than relationships. Most of us are living in an anti-village world uh, where, you know, it, the systems are des- designed to undermine our freedom by fragmenting our communities. And when you do fragment communities, you start having these friendship deserts, which I landed in California in 2008. And, uh, and, and so then we're like in this perpetual survival mode where much of our energy is devoted to working and making a living. And then we don't have the bandwidth to have, you know, to just maintain our current friendships. Uh, I mean, relationships, you know, if you even if you're a parent, that's even more demand placed on us. And sheer survival, sheer survival. We need communities to survive as to thrive as a species. We need friends. And uh, rather than being born into a village or plugging into a new one, we're like, all right, go ahead and uh, make make a garden in the middle of Mojave Desert without any support. And and uh, and that's quite an undertaking, especially if if you want a bountiful garden, if you want, if you're picky and selective like me. So, um, mm. <laughs> so this was kind of a, that's what I was dealing with. I'm, I um, was looking for very specific friends. I wanted women and non-binary people in my life because up to that point, most of my friends were men. And I also didn't want conversations to to revolve around our children and the banalities of parenting tasks. I wanted vulnerable conversations. I wanted to learn about the other person's passion, their fears, their dreams. I wanted, um, you know, people in my life that were in touch with their creative spirit and had no problem being stuck around play and dance in public and when god life got hard cry unabashedly so that's a really tall order uh, because most of us don't even know how to have intimate relationships and in general but then when we do know for romantic partners and rather than just having that intimacy with all of our relations in, in in a way that fulfills us and uh so you know it was it was really hard and uh and i was like all right how am i going to do this so my first task was to find my people follow the conventional wisdom and joined social groups became a parent um, a member of the pta book clubs uh artist gatherings tango lessons all of it anything anything you can (laughs) imagine and, you uh, you and, threw yourself into the existing, the existing resources, whatever seemed in front of you. 
yeah if i saw someone interesting i would be like okay maybe they can be my my there maybe they're my people at a gathering and 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 you know it yielded to a, a couple of really close friends so it wasn't completely you know um fruitless uh, but but I, I wanted more people. I wanted a community too. You know, I wanted more good friends and a community. So um, I decided to become more creative. I coined the term chillactivism and combined activism and chilling with friends. Right. Mm-hmm. So so you're um, channeling your your uh, energy not with only with chilling with friends, but also doing something meaningful for social justice. And uh, and then I wrote an article about that. I posted an ad on Nextdoor and started Make America Walk Again, where neighbors would get together at a point to walk and get to know each other every week. And that was really mm-hmm. fun and quite successful, too. Um, but and I wrote about that, too. And then um, but then, you know, I'm like, OK, it's been like a decade. I've been experimenting in this desert toiling around in this desert of uh, of friendship and I haven't found what I'm looking for so it's time Mm. to try something radical uh I mean the the fact that you felt that you needed to uh take initiative try something almost counter uh cultural makes sense because uh you had what you called a tall order uh you want to connect deeply it really isn't you know, uh, at all in order, it's it's your right as a human, uh, and you know your right to demand it. But you're also right that you know uh, the village doesn't seem to exist. I mean, I wonder from your uh, your experience in early life and the family you still have in Iran, are things different there in sort of social organization? You know, yes. I can't speak to Iran now because I've been so so I've been away for so long. But the Iran that I grew up in, uh, community was a given. In fact, I would yeah. say there was too much of it in some ways. Right, 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 right. They were so always I'm, in your business, right? The early childhood <laughs> frames your sort of orientations to what what life is about and what you can expect from it. Yes, absolutely. And one thing in particular, when I was toiling in the friendship desert that that um, attracted my attention was I, the idea of arranged marriages. And when I was young, living in Iran, it wasn't unusual that people uh, partook in arranged unions that turned into long, loving and long-lasting relationships. Now, these are older people. In my generation, it wasn't so much practiced. But but I was surprised. I was like, how could you like not know this person? And then just, you know, your family set you up. And then you're uh, 40 years later, 50 years later, you're still in a loving relationship. And uh, And I was like, well, maybe there's something to this. So I was like, what if we applied some of the tenets of the arranged marriage to friendship? So begin with commitment first, come up with and rely on an agreed upon structure, and then let the intimacy and the fun to arise and nurture the friendship. And so I... uh, Asked, uh, I went to various gatherings or conferences, and and um, and I used my intuition 
I asked a few women who and uh, non-binary folks who wanted to, if they wanted to try this experiment with me. And they all agreed. And mm -hmm. it was a success. I wrote an op-ed about it in mm -hmm. uh, 2021 in Washington Post. And since then, I've been overwhelmed with responses from people from all over the world who want to try the same thing. And since then, I've offered workshops, one-on-one -on -one sessions, and even performed a commitment ceremony for another friend group that wanted to try what we were doing. Oh, and uh, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of baffling because, um, well, it's baffled experts because apparently it takes... 200 hours of spending time together to become close friends but uh for my oh, friend group right put it that it way took, it sounds like too much of a commitment who could possibly invest 200 hours right uh, it, it, you're not even sure you have to you have to really want to connect you know? <laughs> right but i mean that's it it doesn't no one ever commits to that uh when in the chance friendships you just kind of like trial and error where you spend enough time with someone and they're like all right we're friends so and that here, is another, another factor in why it's difficult to develop friendships out you know outside of what you know your cultural critique whatever it may be uh that is a significant investment and so it, it makes sense that society should be organized in you know in which that it isn't such a currency that people are thrown together over the over you know the hours of the day the days of the week you know Right. And that's not the the model, the societal model that we have currently. And uh, and everything it's I, I kind of see it as the inverted pyramid where where the all the pressure is on the individual or the parents, you know, and not. And then the whole of the society is on their shoulders rather than the other way around. And uh, so but the model that we created uh it shows that you can, in fact, become really good friends in a fraction of that amount of time, because that structure provides uh, this this safety net for the friendship to really grow fa fast and become intimate and and whatever you want it to to be. And yeah. uh, we're really good, good friends. We've been on a on a uh, retreat last December, and I was like, wow, this. This really is as good as it gets. And then I even mm -hmm. got some terrible news while I was on retreat. And, and I was thinking about returning home. And one of our friends who had been, uh, who had stayed behind because they couldn't go on the retreat, she was there and she was like my proxy. She was able to do what I couldn't do far from far away. So, so um, I mean, this friendship is as real as it gets. It's so interesting, you know, and great that you have an experiment that really has succeeded uh, and that you can present that way. And, it, and it's such an interesting positive spin, you know, first on the arranged marriage concept, which, you know, I think in the West, our rap on that would be, uh, that is almost a definition of unfreedom. Uh, so how, you know, can you spin that positively? Uh, but it sounds like, you you seem pretty clear that the putting the commitment up front actually is key to what makes this work or what made it work in your case. It is. And and I would say that um, one of the pervasive myths that is uh, that you have to debunk in order to 
for yourself if you want to try this is that arranged means forced. And uh, counterintuitively, this model offers more freedom and options than chance friendships because you can customize your friendship group based on or friendship person based on your own needs and desires. And uh, and unlike, you know, ending a marriage, whether it's arranged or conventional and existing exiting a a, um, friendship uh, an arrangement is is really really simple all you have to do is say well i don't want to do this anymore the commitment ceremony in other words is not backed up by the force of any law you know <laughs> so perhaps the law of love the law of love i mean holy crap like my my uh i've been I'm about to uh, celebrate my 17th year with my husband. And I would say that, you know, when we made our commitment, it was very much like this type of commitment where it wasn't like, oh, death, this like heavy death do us apart kind of, you know, pressure on us. We're like, hey, let's just see where it goes. Let's commit to each other, renew our commitment every day that we wake up. You know, do I want to be in this marriage or not? You know, and that just frees us up to the commitment doesn't mean that it's permanent. You know, there's a, that's the permanency is what trips people up. You know, mm. committing is, is it's just like you set that intention, you have an action and you're like, this is what I want to commit. But if I change in any way, my needs change and we can't, or my desires change and we can't work it out and the other person seem to be going different directions, then then uh, we need to revisit the commitment. Mm -hmm. Well, I see you have high standards, uh, you know, again, for your relationships, if you're, uh, you know, committed to, to facing each day fresh, you know, uh, on that, you know, somewhat existential level, you know, <laughs> then you're not relaxing. <laughs> necessarily but you find the freedom in that in that that high plane of connection yes and i would say that i am relaxing i'm relaxing into i'm relaxing into what is you know what you know just having a really healthy relationship with reality and we can relax into it it's not like every day i wake up with anxiety that oh my god am i gonna lose my husband or and he's not this he's not having anxiety either it just is a very chill kind of a way of being that that uh, and it's very sweet every day it's like I'm making a choice today to be with you today I'm making a choice it's a choice it's not because I made a commitment 17 years ago well and and can we you know bring that that sort of level of depth uh, consciousness commitment and uh i guess you know passion is what i'm hearing into other types of relationships you know as a way of fulfilling these needs absolutely so. and what happened to me is that the arranged friendship model ever since i uh started it in 2018 i was like it it really brought clarity to my other friendships and relationships 
uh, even with myself, you know, and, uh, and now I'm so deliberate in how I prioritize my time and do what sustains me in my life. And I'm not shy about asking other people how they define their connection to me. I'm, I, I'm, I ask people flat out if they're satisfied with the level of our transparency and intimacy. And oh, then wow. I practice yeah. I don't yeah. know how that would land if a friend said that to me, <laughs> but it is beautiful. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it. You have to be really, really open and 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 um, to to those kinds of things. I'm like, hey, you know, what what do you think? Like, what do you think? Am I being served? Are you being served? <laughs> am, am I being a good friend to you? Is there anything lacking? And I practice communicating my love and gratitude um with people you know you know we, we don't do that generally we usually like are very task oriented or um you know we just kind of forget to say how that we love each other and we have these are the things that i appreciate about the other person uh, we don't do that it's things that water the the uh the garden of friendship and relationships and um and then you know also communicating my boundaries and honest, you know, like those are my relationship needs, honesty, boundary. And if we're not on the same page, then it's really clear that it's time to move on. Oh, certainly. I mean, being that explicit about uh, what, what you uh, need, provide from one another certainly gives you the right to, and, and obviously makes it easier to get into you know, the boundary or what might be the harder types of discussions. Like, what about um, a, a, just a, a broader spectrum on what connection, what relationships are about? I mean, you know, beyond uh, a species-specific perspective, you know, I'm all about yeah. humanist, not human supremacist. Yes, thank you for saying that. Uh, and yeah, I mean, uh, while we've done to our other relations on earth is uh, just terrible. Um, and we can turn this around. The One of the problems that I see is that relationships are, you know, every study is like relationships are the most important thing in the world. Um, and that includes to me when I say relationships, that is the relationship to the self, to uh, all of our relations, including animals, plants, whatever. All my relations. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, and also the divine, whatever that means to the person. And um, we haven't learned how to have those relationships. There's in uh, I was looking at K through 12 curriculum. Um, there is like we learn math almost every single day from kindergarten all the way to graduation and beyond every single day. Something that I don't use even every month. And I was <laughs> like a science major. I was like calculus and molecular biology and biostatistical analysis in grad school. Those are the things that I did. And now. And even then I wasn't using it every day, but, you know, so math, we put so much emphasis on math. We don't put 
any emphasis on how to have relationships. There's not a single course devoted to, to developing those relationships in K through 12, uh, most, most schools. And, um, and there's some like little social emotional learning and there's a war on that too. Right. Uh, and of course, you are together in the room. And of course, the traditional model is you're supposed to essentially refuse to, uh, you know, behave as though you are in a group. Right. Right. You have your your teacher centric model. Don't talk to one another. You know, it's just right. so backward from the, it is. It the is. whole conversation we've been having. Right. I mean, what culture what? is it's all my relations. Right. The the indigenous Americans had. Uh, you know, the correct notion. And we're able to set up a society in which uh, uh, togetherness among human beings, as well as with other species, isn't a dear currency. It flows for everyone all, all day long. So it wouldn't be it wouldn't be a problem. But we've set up a society, you know, that almost seeks to to exterminate it. I went back to uh, a great book I read in my 20s called The Pursuit of Loneliness by the social critic Philip Slater. Uh, great book from mm. the 1970s. And his contention that American culture sort of manufactures loneliness through our, our uh, twin commitments to the ideology of individualism, right? Which is, he says, is rooted in the attempt to deny the reality of human interdependence. And then through technology, which we generally use to avoid having to interact with other people in the flesh. Absolutely. And, uh, and it, it's, it's interesting, you were like this, this kind of like a dictatorial model of, of education, um, that, you know, is like, sit down and shut up. And let me tell you what it is. Um, so, so, I mean, that's one of the reasons our democracy is in peril, right? <laughs> you know, like, we don't really practice democracy being democratic. At school, as soon as we go to school, there is a there is a uh, an expert, someone who you know, like really good teachers. They're very good at those relationships, and uh, and there are many many wonderful teachers who who do practice more of a democratic way of of uh, uh, running their classrooms. But um, for most, for the for the traditional or conventional model yeah you know there is you have to listen to these rules you have no uh, recourse you have no way in um saying what rule is just what it isn't and then when we go to college is the same when we go to work uh then our employer becomes our dictator and um <laughs> and so we have all of that and then we live right now in a era of pervasive loneliness and polarization. And uh, one of the things that um, has happened is that our relationships have even become more, more fractured because of the polarization, because of the loneliness where communities starved and, uh, and long held social contracts keep eroding. Yeah. And so losing the instinct, you know, for, for one another, uh, you know, for for certainly for seeing uh, oneself in the other. You know. mm, absolutely. I heard, I heard a, a talk you gave with another interviewer in, in which you talked about the the Persian version of the uh, the myth of Narcissus, and that's coming to mind as you're talking. You want to tell that one? Yes, sure. Yeah, yeah. 
So the narcissist uh, in the Greek myth, he sees his image in the, the lake and uh, he's so beautiful. His image is so beautiful that he falls in love with himself and he is unable to move and he eventually dies uh, because this adoration uh, renders him immobile. And so in the Persian version, the narcissist ends up diving into the lake to unite with his lover. And he doesn't know how to swim, but he risks everything to for that union. And when he drowns, two narcissist flowers emerge at the edge of the lake. And these flowers are his eyes. These two flowers are his his eyes looking at the entire world and seeing the image, this saying that this is me. The entire world is me. All my relations. All my relations. Oh. Now that's incredible. Uh, you know, I'm I'm so glad to have heard that and sorry that I had never heard it before. It, you know, it gives me the notion that that for Narcissus, the, uh, there was a lover uh, and it was just in the image of the self, but not right. just the image, you know? And then, right. and then you take that and it becomes the basis for for a real, a real connectedness. Now, that's the sort of stuff that could build a culture. <laughs> yes. And and so so that the term that I call this kind of like stopping at our own image is a stunted narcissism. And and when we when we see all of our relations as a reflection of our ourselves, that's ripened narcissism. When we have allowed our narcissism to bloom and not just get stunted at one point. Well, now now we're getting somewhere. <laughs> um, <laughs> what what about Rumi? You're so well versed in the, in the Persian poetic tradition. What what wisdom do you glean from it on on the subject of you know? what loneliness is and, and how to transform it. Hmm. I'm sure he um, wasn't really having issues with loneliness um, <laughs> because of the culture <laughs> or, where he was, but he was, he was a refugee uh, child himself and uh, thrown into a different culture. So he had to build community or tap into an existing community and adapt uh, like a lot of other refugees, but um, what I love about it, one of one of the things that we don't have, you know, among all the relations relationships that we're lacking, is one the relationship with death, and the other is the relationship with our imagination. And mm -hmm. So, so this uh, death and renewal keep. You know, just there's so many examples of it in Persian poetry that, um, like Rumi says, I was dead and I became alive. I was tears and I became laughter. The reign of love began ruling and I became eternal. So, um, so there's a lot about death and renewal. Yeah. And but you don't have to, you don't have to, you know, uh, uh, formally believe in reincarnation to use that stuff because that's just basic 
you know, to how plants grow and to, to, to how life works. How life works. And in my book, uh, A Girl Called Rumi, I have, I have the myth of uh, the seven valleys of love from, uh, from the, one of Rumi's teachers, Attar Neshaburi, who, uh, you know, I was like looking at one of these translations and I was just stunned. You know, I was just like stunned. Conference I was like, what? yes, conference of the verse. Thank you. And and there is there's one passage that says something like this is like a rephrasing, but um, the soul like the body is always in a state of decline or progress. And um mm. Right, Dylan said, and, what, "What isn't busy being born is busy dying." Yes. <laughs> we stole it from right from that. <laughs> right, and, but the second part is what what uh, astounded me, which was one state is in no way better than the other. So we have this, you know, in our in our dual mind, we always keep seeing progress as a better thing than than decline, but our neurons are constantly pruning, pruning things that we don't need the um, or we're not using. Same thing happens in nature, right? Mm -hmm. And that's a good thing. Cancer uh, progresses a lot and that's not necessarily a good thing. So, so like just having our, again, a different relationship with death, with decline, with renewal and with progress is is a, one of those ways that we can uh, really live a fulfilling life it's a it's a refreshing reframing you know and and that we badly need i mean i think even a loneliness i mean the term sort of suggests from an individualistic point of view right it's an individual issue first of all and and, and one that's based in the emotions in the Surgeon General's report, I mean, he says he does define loneliness as a subjective emotional state. But if you think of it instead as social isolation, then that's something you can look at objectively. You know, what are the functions that other people play in your life? What are the needs they should be playing or do or don't? You know, what's the quality of your relationship? Yes, yes. And that's something that we could all use to uh, become um, more, you know, we, we should be lifelong learners of relationships and, and just keep mm -hmm. restoring, mm -hmm. repairing, maintaining relationships. Right, and builders, yeah. you know, and this is where community resources and you know, public policies, you know, influence what our, what our experiences are, the ways we connect or don't connect. So, uh, so let's get back to you. You know, this, uh, this experiment has worked with your arranged friendships, you were the initiator, it sounds like. Did you pick them all sort of by yourself and have one-on-one -on -one chats to invite them in? Or did you start grouping up and then think of some others? There, there's more than uh, one way this kind of thing can start. Yes, I, I. there have been some people who, uh, you know, one of the friends have invited and, you know, so people come in and out occasionally, but right now we're really good. We're seven, seven people, and we like that that number. Um, so anyways, right now we're happy with it. Who knows what will be in, in the future? But but yeah, so um, 
it hasn't always been me. And again, it's not a hierarchical thing at all. Just right. because I came up with this idea, that doesn't mean that um, I'm in any way a leader in this group. We're all, you know, we all take turns to facilitate or, or and it's so natural. It's not like we designate a, a leader or whatever. It just happens. We all have a yeah, uh, we have a self pruning mechanism. So, so, so if, if uh, somebody does too much, it just it just doesn't happen. We have we have a way that that uh, uh, it all works out. And life is a dance, so we'll dance with those dynamics too if they occur. I, I want to ask you about dance and and about your uh, your work with refugees, I guess, more broadly, and how you connect it to these sort of social initiatives. I mean, obviously, you were a refugee yourself when you arrived in the country, and, and the, the condition of being a refugee is one where you're, you know, acutely dependent on others. Mm. Yeah, so I came here at the age of 14, and my parents left me here, and it was under extraordinary circumstances, and then uh, they... Um, left and I was like okay this is a strange country I don't speak English uh this is like a different planet and and I was really homesick I was really depressed I was very traumatized from the oppression and the war that I experienced it was like eight years of my childhood spent in that and um and so one of the things that I naturally gravitated to was dancing and I danced a lot and I felt a lot better and later on I found out that uh, dancing does indeed reduce trauma, you know, effects of trauma. It, it uh, decreases anxiety and depression and creates uh, a sense of belonging if you dance with others. So we have to 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 move. Even imagining movement is is beneficial. So what uh, one of the things that um, happened when the Syrian refugees started coming to San Diego, uh, I was doing like um, roomy performances with this world-class musical ambassadors of peace with musical backgrounds and recitation. And it was kind of like an edutainment to sh because there was a lot of anti-Muslim and anti-immigrant you know, anti sentiment in about 2015, 2016, it was starting to, to uh, grow. And so this was a way to show that that culture, the Middle Eastern culture, in specific Persian culture as a really inclusive, beautiful one, not what you see on TV. And, and you know, the audience would always be in tears at the end and it was gorgeous. And so I asked them, I was like, well, what can I do to help the refugees in San Diego? And they said to start a drum circle. And I was like, okay, that's what uh, hippies in Berkeley do. These poor people who are displaced and are traumatized. And it turns out that there is like this wealth of research that drumming and dancing really helps. So I started doing that. And naturally, because I'm more of a dancer than a drummer, I would just kind of switched it to, to uh, dancing. And I danced with Afghan, um, Syrian, Iraqi, um, Kurdish, Iranian refugees in San Diego. And it was beautiful. And we put on a few performances and and again, the audience was crying and it was just just to see like the level of transformation when people first walk in and when they leave is just a miracle. And then um, when the Muslim ban happened in 27, 2017, 2018, I focused in um, 
for uh, Central Americans and Mexicans who were seeking asylum at the uh, U.S.-Mexico border and started dancing in Tijuana and Mexicali uh, with refugees. And I still hold um, weekly dance sessions with about 300 refugees in Tijuana. Um, and we do it through Zoom now because during the uh, pandemic, they still wanted to dance and I couldn't go over there. So they said, well, how can we do this? And I was like, well, let's try to do the dance. And it was a, a some trial and error. Now we got it down and we can really, um, you know, reap maximum benefit from from all that. Mm. So, I, I mean, I guess I'm just picking up that, you know, the impulse to connect is just the way you are oriented, you know, so being an ambassador of peace <laughs> isn't much of a stretch. Yes. <laughs> I wanted to, what I wanted to do is uh, just dancing helped me, music and dancing. It was illegal in Iran. And then uh, I saw that it was, it was denied to me as a child. And I wanted to bring that which was denied to me as a child, which was music and dancing. And what I really needed as a teenager in a strange country, which was a sense of community together and provide that for other refugees and share it. And again, there is no like hierarchy there either. We're having a good time. We're uh, we're laughing. Kids are like shivering in the corner sometimes because of the trauma that they've experienced. And then at the end, they're doing these partner dances. And it's just, again, when I bring volunteers, everyone leaves in tears. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess the way things are in these United States uh, is not likely to change fundamentally, uh, you know, in our lifetime, except uh, in worse ways because the climate's going to pot. But uh, in other words, there, there will always be this glaring need uh, to connect and create community. You told me you have a, uh, a sort of new community building vision you've been toying with, and I'd love to hear you describe it. Oh, thank you for that. Yeah. What if we, we uh, embraced relationship maintenance in a community-based setting? So to create a community center in each neighborhood that provides a nourishing dinner, followed by various breakout groups that they can go for singing, dancing, gaming, discussing local candidate support, climate action, you know, or whatever trade that they want to learn. There will be workshop leaders um, that um, are workshop facilitators. Um, because again, I think it's important that we don't have that hierarchy and people are learning from each other in a setting. Yeah. And this would mitigate loneliness and extremism, which research shows goes hand in hand. And in, it would foster lifelong education, provide relief for busy parents, opportunity for kids to do their homework. And, uh, and then it's all while offering a non-bar setting in the evening where people of right. all ages can gather. And uh, when I described this to my Kenyan friend, she was like, uh, so you mean like an African village? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, yes, it's such an intuitive thing that most people immediately get. Uh, and right now, as I said, we were, we're living in an anti-village world with highways and cubicles and no viable shared space where it's suitable for multi-generational community, uh, especially at night. Yeah. 
Right now, if you don't have a community, only a sliver of the population has an obvious place to go to socialize in the evening, which is a bar. Uh, if you're, you know, unless you're community. still part of a, a religious community that's gathering that regularly, but you know, right. of course, we're in this moment when those when the faiths are declining, and the you know the great thing about them are their community resources. They make the uh, the currency of interaction less dear. Yes. But uh, but the, the, we need a part of the reason for the creation of the humanist being is because we need we secular folks who are you know gaining in our percentage of the population not necessarily in our understanding of ourselves as being a group we need to step up and provide this sort of thing exactly as you're describing so, so a venue and a, a curriculum of sorts right and and i think what the thing that was successful about arranged marriage the the uh, I mean arranged friendships. The friendship was the goal. It wasn't like oh we want to network or we are all interested in a certain activity. That was well, it. Really and learning tango, you know. <laughs> right, right, right. And then like the the friendship would be like a added benefit or or a byproduct of that that uh, gathering. This is specifically a community for people to, and it doesn't have an agenda like um, um, any religious or anything else. It's just a service where, uh, but but I mean, the benefits will definitely be there. Like imagine if there was uh, neighborhood centers that were as convenient and available as Starbucks cafes. And um, if you're traveling or moving to a different town, a different city, you can find these community centers within walking distance where you can get a nutritious, low-cost meal and plug into an existing community. And imagine if the government invested in communities in this ways, instead of like the way that they do in corporations or in addition to, you know, we're, we're talking about democracy and uh, the there's evidence that a similar method has worked out in the past. Folk schools in the 19th century helped transition Nordic countries from poor authoritarian societies to really vibrant democracies in just a few generations. And, uh, and the Nordic government saw benefit uh, and they started subsidizing these retreats and where they people became um, co-authors of democracy learned self-cultivation how to repair and maintain um, and have relationships and it only took 10 percent of the population to make this happen which is incredible and mm. uh, and even here mm. in the U.S. the Highlander Folk School in Tennessee was attended by Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks and it played nice. an instrument role in the civil rights and labor movements and this was inspired by the European model too so so there is it's it's very exciting to see that such a thing has worked and this is a, a variation of it that adds food which which mm -hmm. I think is a key ingredient for a number of reasons yeah so community plus learning plus food in every neighborhood and and it's uh, and I'm also thinking about like overworked parents who have to come home and prepare a meal for their kid after a long day of stressful job or so many people who are food insecure in this country, uh, so many lonely, isolated people, senior citizens, 
And um, and then also like the the beautiful example of Black Panthers who just transformed their communities by feeding kids before school. So what are you thinking in terms of next steps for getting such a thing off the ground? I presume uh, in San Diego or the environs. Yeah, if your listeners have any ideas of funding such a pilot, I would like to to uh, start it and work out the kinks. Um, so, so yeah, I'm at the very ground level of, of uh, looking at grants and uh, ways to make this happen. I think it's a great model. You know, I'll think about what we might be able to do with it from our group because, you know, community building is the thing that brought our group together and what we hope to make manifest so wow fabulous idea uh <laughs> and and if you do something like that um you know definitely keep in touch i'd love to know how it all, it is all going oh yes indeed and vice versa well for folks who have listened to this whole conversation and, and still don't feel sure about uh what they can do you know to enrich their own lives in the social connectedness, what would you say? I would say start working with the relationship with yourself first, because we have so much trauma inside of us that we're not aware of that that uh, become obstacles in other relationships. Um, I, I saw someone that says like, you know, if you have, you're not working on your shadow self, you're like, you end up dating it, you know, or something. Ah. So, <laughs> so the, uh, the work on ourselves is paramount to, to just see what, you know, like, where is our blind side right now? What are we doing that, uh, what are we shy about? all of those, why why don't we want to dance? Like for example, dance is a trauma response. A lack of, if, if you're not dancing, I talked to a therapist, a, a, a trauma expert for one of my articles and, and she's like, well, yeah, you know, you say your mind doesn't want to say, oh, I'm traumatized, so I'm not dancing because I want to shrink into my own uh, body and not expand and it's not, I don't feel safe. What, what your mind says to uh, to just uh, be able to justify you not dancing is that, oh, I'm uh, this is not the appropriate time to dance or I'm not a good dancer or uh, not in these times, you know, maybe later, you know, and so so we say these things. And uh, so, so, I mean, if just something so simple or people are, are in Iran are like, you know, just, put their lives at risk to dance in public. And here we have the freedom to dance and we don't do it in public. You know, we just don't do it because we're self-censoring ourselves. So so a lot of that is going on uh, for us. And it, we just uh, have to kind of make it a priority, uh, having a good relationship with our own body, knowing when we're triggered, what is uh, nor what nourishes us, and then what conversations nourish us, what kind of settings nourish us, what type of people. It, it, then we become really intuitive how to, to place ourselves ourselves in a sufficient ground where friendships can um, can occur. Grow. But intuitive, but, but uh, not unstated, you know. I've heard you say a couple of times uh, that you gain advantage by being conscious and 
uh, speaking openly about what you need, what you want. Yes. And then also timing is really important. Like, um, you know, you just have to figure out your own body budget is a beautiful term that I use so much. Like uh, if you if we think of our body as an account and bank account and then, you know, things like beautiful conversations, good sleep, good food, being in nature, exercising, all of those are in our our. Uh, replenish our bank account and then things that that don't that that depleted are like having an argument not sleeping being stressed having an illness all of those things and so when we are having conversations with people we first check in especially if it's a difficult conversation or a vulnerable conversation checking in with ourselves am i nourished enough to be able to handle this do i have enough reserves in my bank account and then the other person asks them if they if the you have a shared language like that, or at least perceive that they're in a good place to receive whatever you have to to say. You, if you can't just flat out ask, are you in a good place to have this conversation? Wow, uh, those are all the questions I got. Is there is there anything more that you uh, have a burning need to say about the nature of friendship? <laughs> um. Yeah, and uh, along with how uh, I talked about relationship death, I would say uh, a friendship and a relationship with our imagination is super important too. And uh, right now we have a really dysfunctional relationship where we have this built-in virtual reality, natural intelligence machine that's free, requires no subscription fee, available 24-7, no cell reception, Wi-Fi. We can access it at any time. And right now we use it mostly for worrying. So there is a way to <laughs> let, uh, to, and that's why storytelling becomes so important. That's why I wrote my book. And uh, that's, and my book is all about the, the, the novel is about friendships and relationships and, and our relationship with death, our relationship with uh, our friends and what happens when there's stresses like a, like a war and oppression happen and, you your entire region is thrown in a crucible of political oppression and um and so so yeah the the part of of uh reintroducing uh magic to our lives and um, that i hope to bring into the novel for for the readers is also super important oh wow Wow, thank you, Ari Hanavar. I, I feel so uh, enriched and nourished just knowing that you exist, that I didn't know a few weeks ago, much less getting to meet you and talk to you. Ah, you're so sweet, Roger. Thank you so much, and I hope we keep in touch. That'll be wonderful. You can keep abreast of Ari Hanavar's activities by going to roomywithaview.com and signing up for her mailing list. When Humanists Attack, now in its fourth season, is brought to you by The Humanist Being, a secular religious group incorporated in Vermont. You can meet up with us on meetup.com, where we have two groups, one based in Burlington, Vermont, and one in Brooklyn, New York. Either one will link you to our online activities, including our street epistemology practice group, our intentional communities discussion group, 
and our monthly virtual humanist hang. Reach out to one another. To make a friend, be a friend. Good things happen when you listen.